many years ago. So they're uh, visiting the church there along with a number of other people. And Eli and Ionson is also up in Duluth. So Eli's preaching the word there this morning uh, and encouraging the church there. So uh, all the people that usually sit over there have gone off to do that. Uh, I shouldn't say all. There's a handful here on this side as well. But uh, you guys will have to forgive me if I direct my attention this way quite a bit. But um, favoritism, absolutely. Amen. Um, so uh, we actually had a great time uh, yesterday. Uh, a number of the young families went out fishing. And so Jared actually put together a plan for us to go out fishing over by Carson Park. Uh, I think Jayana caught the fish of the day. So uh, she had the big catch. I caught one that was about this big. And then we threw it back in the water, and I think everybody caught that same fish over a period of about an hour and a half. But uh, it was a good time just being together with our young families. And as well, I know I heard Joel and Christy did a great devotional for the young families on Friday night. I'll have to go back and listen to that. Uh, And then I think we have some softball later on today. So uh, it's a big family weekend this weekend, and I think uh, it's great to be together as a church. Amen? Philippians chapter 1. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to wrap up our series on the book of Philippians. Uh, And my hope is that what we're going to do is, uh, I think the message will be somewhat familiar. It ought to be if you've been paying attention over the last number of weeks. Uh, So there will be a familiar feel to it, but hopefully I'll be able to communicate uh, the message in a fresh way for all of us so I'm not just regurgitating the same ideas. Uh, And along the way, my hope is that I'm going to fuel... Uh, some decisions for you to make. Uh, I don't think every sermon we listen to, we make these life-changing decisions. I think sometimes we're just absorbing the truth of God's word. But at some point along the way, we also need to make some decisions about how this is going to affect our day-to-day life. And so hopefully you guys will be thinking about some decisions that we need to make as well. As we think about the book of Philippians, if we were to try to capture the, the big idea of the book of Philippians... I think we would end up going to Philippians chapter 2. I think most people would probably argue uh, the first half of of Philippians 2 is sort of the big idea of everything in the book of Philippians. It talks about the mindset of Christ. Uh, It talks about how he, uh, being in very nature God, he had humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Uh, That mindset is what we're to adopt in our own life and Uh, should be pervasive in all of our relationships that we have. And so I think the the big idea of Philippians is right there. And I think that's the basis for everything that Paul uh, argues throughout the book of Philippians. Everything else is built off of that very mindset of Jesus. Uh, Hence the reason why uh, we talked about having a renewed mind so much throughout this last sermon series. However, if we were to try to capture the goal that Paul has in mind in the book of Philippians, I think we would go to Philippians chapter 1. And Philippians 1 and verse 25. Something, there we go. Philippians 1 verse 25. Uh, It says this, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. And there we have the Apostle Paul. He's 
he's in prison as he writes this letter. Uh, he's facing potentially impending death, and he's contemplating these two options of life or death before him. Uh, and he uh, is persuaded that he's going to go on and live, and this is what he says. He talks about how his goal is that as he goes on and lives, he's going to be there for their progress and joy in the faith. In other words, as I think about the book of Philippians, I'm envisioning the book of Philippians like a big mountain. And at the base of that mountain is the mindset of Christ. And at the summit of the mountain is progress and joy in the faith. You don't get to the summit without starting at the base. You don't get progress and joy without beginning with embracing wholeheartedly this mindset of Christ that the Apostle Paul talks about. And I love the idea that Paul couples progress and joy together. That these things are not mutually exclusive. I think oftentimes, in practice, people treat progress and joy as if they're two separate aspects. Where some are, are so much about progress that everyone else is miserable around them. They're always trying to grow. They're always trying to push the envelope. They're always trying to stretch themselves. And so themselves and everyone else around them is just miserable. And others are so much about joy that they never stop to look around and realize, actually, nobody's making all that much progress right now. And yet Paul couples these two things together. And in fact, I don't think you could have it any other way. Because I think if you start off uh, really pursuing progress in the faith, and you ignore joy, I think eventually your progress will fizzle out. And I think if you focus on your joy in the faith and your relationship with God and the security that comes from that, well, I think if you over-focus on that and ignore progress, I think that's going to fizzle out as well. And so Paul couples these two things together. He wants both progress and joy. He wants his cake and he wants to eat it too. And so this is the two things I want to talk about today as we uh, summarize the book of Philippians. So we're going to talk about both progress and joy. Let me ask the question, why was, so, why was Paul so unrelenting in his labor for progress? If we were just to think about Paul's pursuit of progress, uh, I think one of the reasons we could imagine was behind that would be uh, from Acts chapter 16, this is where the Apostle Paul, we read about uh, Luke is recording the, the church being planted in Philippi. And in Acts chapter 16, uh, Paul is on one of his missionary expeditions, and he tries to go to the province of Asia and to Bithynia. Jesus actually closes the door to him doing that. And then in the process, Paul has a vision, and we read about it in verse 9 and 10. He says, during the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so why was Paul so unrelenting in his pursuit of progress? Well, Paul had a vision from God. He had a vision that God had given him. It wasn't the only vision that Paul had ever seen. Uh, but strangely, the vision doesn't seem all that specific, at least as I read about it. 
There's a, a vision of a man of Macedonia begging for help. It doesn't say much more than that as far as we know. And yet it was enough for Paul to conclude that God is asking me or God is calling me to go to Macedonia and to preach the gospel. And so from there he goes off to Philippi where the church is eventually planted in response to this vision. And so Paul, as you read in Acts 16, he goes to Philippi. There's this incredible conversion of Lydia. Lydia becomes a Christian, and then there's this, this woman with an evil spirit uh, kind of following Paul around, and Paul eventually gets annoyed, uh, cast this spirit. It actually says he was annoyed. Cast the spirit out, and then Paul ends up in prison. And at some point, you've got to imagine if you think you have a vision from God and all of a sudden you're in prison, you might be wondering, did I really get the vision wrong? Because usually we think about God just sort of parting the Red Sea, which of course he can do. But when we start to face challenges, we start to wonder, did God really actually send me in this direction? Is this is where God was actually calling us? And so Paul continues on. Ten years later, he's in prison again writing this letter, and apparently he's still helping out the Macedonian man, so to speak. He's still helping this church in Philippi. And so Paul had this vision that led him to Philippi, and this church began. And although Paul's conversion, if you know anything about his conversion story, it's pretty dramatic. Uh, his calling as an apostle and this particular vision from God are unique to the Apostle Paul. I don't imagine we're going to have the same sort of vision experience, but I don't think these examples are devoid of instruction for us. There's lessons that we can learn in our own Christian life that when God gives you a vision, a way forward, a path to where he wants you to go, guidance, direction, what do you do with it? Maybe that comes through much more normal means like prayerful and careful meditation on God's word and affirmation from God's people. But at some point, God gives you direction about what your life ought to be about. And it may be less dramatic, but it's not less important. And so where is God guiding your life? Where does God want you to go? How does he want you to serve? And are you willing to continue on with that vision even after there's trials and challenges and so forth? There is a, a leadership uh, magazine article. Uh, this was probably 20 years ago that this came out. I found it online somewhere. But uh, Lynn Anderson is the author. She describes what happens when a people lose their vision. And she says that a group of pilgrims had landed on the shores of America about 350 years ago. With great vision and courage, they had come to settle in the new land. In the first year, they established a town. In the second, they elected a town council. In the third, the government proposed building a road five miles westward into the wilderness. But in the fourth year, the people tried to impeach the town council because they thought such a road into the forest was a waste of public funds. So somehow these forward-looking people that had vision, so much so that they were willing to travel 3,000 miles across an ocean, had now settled in a new land and weren't even will willing to build a road five miles into the woods. They had lost their pioneering vision. They had lost the willingness to kind of go out and move forward into what was west from this, this town. 
And yet, this is what happens so often for us. We start off with a, a vision. We start off knowing what God wants us to do in our life. We look at the scriptures and we wrestle with things and God leads us down a path. And yet, at some point, it's so easy just to settle in. And yet, Paul held on to his vision. It was this vision that led him to make progress. Paul was convinced that he would remain, that he would continue with all of them for their progress. He was concerned about the progress of Christians into unity and maturity. And as we think about it, I think it should be normal for Christians to be growing up and growing together. We expect that of little kids, don't we? We anticipate that they're going to grow. That's part of, of just normal, ongoing development. And so uh, this last week, my kids, we have this big ruler on the wall. Uh, and so my kids wanted to, to measure themselves. In October, we measured them when we first moved here, and they've grown just two inches. And yet, they're fired up about growing two inches. They're excited about it. And, you know, I didn't just look at them and go, yeah, it's not that big of a deal. Move on. Right? There, there was a lot of encouragement and excitement just for two inches. And yet, as we think about, you know, children growing, you know, we take them to the pediatrician, they check their height and their weight. Even when children are young, they'll ask, you know, so how many words can they speak? They'll ask all sorts of questions to find out different things. And when children are young, uh, we expect them to grow substantially. So in most cases, we anticipate there's going to be a relatively predictable pattern of progress and development. And Paul's concerned about the progress of these Christians. He uses this same word that we translate progress a little bit earlier in chapter 1. When he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. So it's not just him being concerned about the progress of the Christians, it's also the progress of the gospel moving forward. He says, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. You know, Paul was in chains due to the gospel. You know, his example had instilled other Christians with confidence so much so that they were daring to proclaim the gospel, to share the good news. And I think Paul even wrote about this to, to propel the Philippians themselves to, to join in that effort, to progress the gospel forward. And so I'll put another slide here. Seven decisions of progress. And so how can you make progress? The seven S's of progress. This is just what I came up. It's all arbitrary. I just looked through the book of Philippians and just found S words and, and just sort of organized it a little bit, uh, just being fully honest. But these are the ways we can make progress in the gospel and build up Christians. We could spread the message. We can share the gospel with our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers. We can use opportunities that we have with people all around us to start conversations that begin with friendship, but it leads to a life-changing conversion. You know, we could spur on our brothers and sisters. That's what Paul himself was doing in this passage, in chapter 1 and verse 14. We can strive together as one. So much of what 
uh, Philippians 2 is all about as we reflect on the mindset of Christ, that should produce a unity within us, and it takes striving together. You know, we shine like stars. You know, that's where Paul talks about not grumbling or complaining. What do you tend to do? Do you complain about things that are out of your control, or do you change the things that are within your control? And that's what, as we hold on to the word of life, we shine like stars in a world that so often complains about things going on around them. We can serve God by his spirit. I love that in in Philippians chapter 3 where Paul just says, we are those who serve God by his spirit. It's kind of the ways I, I talk to my kids at times. right? I'll use the language of we. We don't do that. We are a team. This is how we act as a family. And Paul seems to be doing that with the Philippians. We are those that serve by his spirit. He's instilling an identity in them even as he instructs them. Uh, We strain towards what's ahead. What goals do you have spiritually? What are the things you have your eye on that you need to develop in and mature in? We seek real-time peace. As I read through Philippians 4 this last week, what stuck out to me was the, the words, in every situation. Philippians 4, verse 4, then later when he talks about contentment, it's in every situation. And inevitably, after a situation, what do you have after that situation is over? You have another situation, right? There's ongoing situations. It's just like they keep on coming. And so we continue to seek peace in Christ. We seek contentment in him. These are some decisions that you could make, and I'm sure as you read through it, you can think of some other decisions you might need to make. We need to have vision of progress in the faith for our own lives and our brothers and sisters around us. And so let's think about the progress that we're making spiritually. Secondly, let's talk about joy. Uh, Over and over throughout the book of Philippians, we read about joy. Sometimes it's Paul's own joy. Other times he's instructing the Christians to rejoice and to be joyful. Uh, In Philippians 1, uh, he prays with joy. Uh, Later on in verse 18 and 19, he says, And because of this, referring to Christ being preached, because of this I rejoice, and I will continue to rejoice. He says in chapter 2, verse 17, Even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering, on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I love that, that Paul just goes, you know, you should be joyful. Just after thinking about trials, challenges, hey, by the way, why don't you get a little joy from that? We should be glad and rejoice in that. Uh, How about chapter 4? He refers to the Philippians as my joy and crown. And then in verse 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. I mean, that's an emphatic point. He wants us to rejoice in Christ. This is a man that has a whole lot of talk about joy from a guy in prison. Yeah, this last week, last weekend, I took a trip to Milwaukee and uh, visited my family. So all my family's there. haven't seen my family uh, very much over the last year because of the pandemic and then moving here. 
Uh, and so I took a trip to Milwaukee, and on Friday night, uh, the kids are playing, and my wife and I are sitting on one couch. We're talking with my little sister, who's not so little anymore. Uh, she goes to UW-Madison. And then uh, my parents are on the other couch, and we're talking. And at some point, uh, growing up, my parents had always kind of talked about me. My dad would say this phrase, he's the best horse in the, in the barn. And that was kind of a way of saying I was like the good kid. And at which point, my wife is sitting right next to me, and I can just feel the stare of, like, that's not so much true, because I've heard the stories of what really went on. Uh, and so uh, I'm feeling the pressure a little bit, and I go, yeah, that's not so true. Uh, and so as we start talking about uh, kind of me growing up and things like that, there were a lot of things I did that were really good. I was good at being compliant and sort of following the rules that everyone else could see at least. But there was a lot going on that my parents didn't always see. And uh, I actually have tried to tell them this a number of times that I don't think they really wanted to believe it. But as the stories went on, uh, the common thread, if I'm just being honest, was a whole lot of drunkenness that ended with a whole lot of vomiting and throwing up. And it was pretty rampant from the time about 16 to 18. And that was kind of like the, the highlights of all, I don't know if lowlights is probably the better word. Um, and so I'm telling all of these stories about what happened. And uh, it's kind of therapeutic for me just to like tell them about all these things. And uh, some of them, there's like laughter about some of the things that happened and and all of that, and it's good to be able to have 15 years of space between now and then. But uh, at one point, one of my family members said, I'm glad to hear you are having some fun. And to be honest, I kind of knew what she meant. Because I, I kind of get it, right? I, I get the party scene and some of the things that were happening, and I can remember how it felt to be there, at least in the earlier part of the party. But I also thought about Hebrews 11.25, that passage about all the people of faith, and it talks about Moses, and how Moses had chose to be mistreated along with the people of God, rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. The reason people sin, can we just be really honest, the reason people sin is because there's pleasure associated with it. There's a jolt of, of pressure or pleasure, a momentary rush of, of what feels good in the moment. And yet, as I thought about my sort of combination of sin and what that looked like in that moment, where would that have left me eventually? Even just within 24 hours, where does all that lead? I know people that continue down that path, and so I'm pretty well aware of where that eventually leads. And some stories are far more dramatic than others, but it's easy in the moment to think this is great, but you find out pretty quickly this has a lot of heartbreak and a lot of sin and a lot of brokenness that comes with it. Now, if I could go back and talk to 17-year-old drunk Dustin, what would I say? What would the Apostle Paul say? Right? I think one of the things I would say is, so how's that working for you? How's that really panning out? What's the big picture here? What are you trying to accomplish with all of this? 
I think about Psalm 4 and verse 7. In the ESV, it says, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. I would just want to look at 17-year-old drunk Dustin, and I would just want to say, look, I have a joy that you know nothing about. And I get what it looks like in this moment, but let's just sort of extrapolate that out just a little bit for a moment. I would want to say, look, I, I got more joy than what's going on at this party. And you could replace drunkenness with whatever it was that you were scavenging for to find happiness, whether it be impurity or some sort of perpetual shopping spree or serial dating or binging on entertainment or any other number of things we might do, but it's all fleeting. And when it's gone, you're going to need another dose. And so... As we think about what goes on in the world, this is kind of an oversimplified picture, but what we might call worldly people, if we use the language of 1 John 2, many of us in this room probably were just that. Worldly people are just trying to cobble together a series of fleeting pleasures. And sometimes that looks really good when you're struggling as a Christian and everybody else seems like they're doing great. It's really deceptive. You know, I think about 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 to 17. It says, the world and its desires are passing away. And so there's, you might see worldly people, who we might call worldly people. Uh, then there's the double-minded. There's the, the people that are just miserably riding the fence. This is the place where it's no fun to have uh, or to be. James chapter 1, verse 8 talks about those that are double-minded, are unstable in all they do. And then there's the kingdom-first people. And I think at least as they mature, they're enjoying a lasting joy. I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm not saying that that's the, uh, the emotional sense that you have at any given moment. But I am saying there's something different about a Christian who's devoted to God's kingdom. I think about Matthew 25, verse 21 and 23. It's the parable of the bags of gold, how the, the one with the five bags and the one with the two bags, they go and they get busy getting those bags of gold to work, and they get five and two more. And what does the master say? Come and share in your master's happiness. It's the person that's, that's really jumped all in. Not perfect, but they've jumped all in that experiences the joy of God's kingdom. You know, I, I think about a lesson I learned as a young Christian. Uh, when I was studying the Bible, I was 19 when I started, 18 when I started studying the Bible, and over about a span of the year, a year, I uh, started just learning a lot about all different things. Uh, things that sort of were confirmed about what I understood growing up about Christianity, other things really challenged me to the core. And there's one illustration that was shared with me when I was studying the Bible that I've, I've always thought back about, and I think it puts things into perspective. But if you were to, to think about two passengers on an airplane, just imagine uh, there's the flight attendant comes up and comes up to the first passenger and just says, you need to put your parachute on. Uh, because it will improve your flight. And so 
the first passenger's a little bit skeptical because they don't see how putting on a parachute would improve their flight. And so they finally go, well, it's the flight attendant. They probably know what they're talking about, so I'll give it the old college try. So they put the parachute on, and they immediately feel the weight of it upon their shoulders. It's heavy. They sit down in their seat, and they're hunched over because they got this big parachute on their back. And so they're uncomfortable. And they, thought, they think to themselves, you know, I'll just give it a little bit of time. Maybe it takes a while for it to kick in. And so they go on, and after a while, the flight attendant comes down. They want to serve some piping hot coffee. They go down the center aisle, and all of a sudden, this piping hot coffee just spills all over the first passenger's lap, and they wince in pain. It's hot. They get so frustrated, they stand up, they take the parachute off, they throw it to the ground. It's going to be a long time before you get that person to put the parachute on again. They have cynicism. And their whole perspective about that parachute is different. As far as they're concerned, they think they were lied to. The second passenger is told to also put on his parachute, but he was told to put it on for a much different reason. So he's told, put your parachute on because in a short while, you're going to have to jump 30,000 feet out of the airplane, and it'll save you from sure death. And so the, first pa or the second passenger puts the parachute on, and he too feels the weight of it upon his shoulders. It's heavy. He, too, is hunched forward because he has the parachute on his back. He's uncomfortable. He, too, has the, the flight attendant comes down, spills this coffee all over his lap, and he winces in pain. And what does he do? Does he stand up, take the parachute off, and throw it to the ground? He never put the parachute on for a better flight. He put it on to save himself from the jump to come. And actually... It's those trials that cause him to, to cling to the parachute all the more and to prepare for the jump to come. He's looking forward to the jump. And so we see two divergent views of the same parachute. And what does modern Christianity so often say? Just be honest about it. Become a Christian. Put on Jesus because God will improve your life. And what follows is a bunch of relationship tips and life hacks and sermons and God's going to make your marriage better and your parenting better. And all these things are going to be great now that you're a Christian. And so what do people do? They try it in an experimental fashion. Because after all, I've tried drugs, sex, and alcohol. Why don't I give this whole Jesus thing a go? They put it on and they recognize that there's trials and temptation and hardship and it's not as easy as it looks. And so what do they do? They rip the parachute, so to speak, off. They bag the whole church thing. It's going to be a long time before I try that again. People try it in an experimental fashion, and the things that they experience only leads to cynicism. Now, I would say love and joy and peace and fulfillment these things are all legitimate fruits of salvation. They're, they're the things that actually come with salvation, but it's not legitimate to use those things as a draw card. When we understand this, there's a joy that's going to be sustained even when it's really hard, even when it's difficult. And actually, it's those trials that actually help us to cling to our salvation all the more. And as we look at Paul's life throughout Philippians, what we see is somebody that is holding on to God holding on to the salvation that he has in Christ. We have a joy 
that is very different than the world around us. It is not some sort of fleeting joy that comes and goes. But as we look to God, we have this joy of salvation. As we take the Lord's Supper, of course, we're going to remember the body and the blood of Jesus. But I want us to think about Hebrews chapter 12, in verse 1 to 3. It says, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray as we think about the example of Jesus, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. Father in heaven, uh, God, we just want to praise you Uh, Certainly for the example of the Apostle Paul as we studied through Philippians, I pray that these truths, not only today but over the last number of weeks, will sink deep into our heart. Uh, Father, but we praise you most importantly for the example of your son Jesus. We are so grateful, even as we read Hebrews 12, we're reminded of uh, as he went to the cross, he had joy in mind. And uh, we confess that our own wisdom is not your wisdom. Uh, We never would have guessed that the way to progress and joy is through the humble, serving, obedient, cross-bearing mindset of Jesus. And so we pray that you would help us to wholeheartedly embrace that mindset, that we would see the ways that we can just be different from the world around us. I pray that you would help us to shine like stars. Uh, We confess that it's only through Jesus that we have salvation that he's our only hope, and we ask that you would help us to wholeheartedly trust you and your plan. Please renew our mind uh, and give us the wisdom to live as faithful disciples in our own day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.